Hi, and thank you so much for joining us today for the second of two webinars exploring the power of patients to really innovate change in healthcare and research. My name is Suze, and I'm a longtime patient advocate and what I like to refer to as a patient engagement engineer. So anywhere there's something important happening in healthcare or research, I want to make sure we figure out how to get patients involved as partners and advisors to really bring that lived experience front and center. Hopefully you are joining us after having already viewed the first webinar in which we discussed how patients can be and are serving as partners in data, because today we're going to look at the other side of that coin, not as patients who are contributing their data, but as patients who are partnering or advising in the strategies related to that data. We started the last webinar by discussing what big data means and where it comes from, and importantly, that not all data is big, like in the case of rare diseases. We also talked about the value of patient data in clinical and academic research, medical product development, health technology assessment, patient safety, and, and many other facets, and how it fills in the gaps that other sources of data, like registries or clinical trial data, just can't cover. And we concluded with a bit of a teaser for today's webinar, which is the premise that the best way to harness the power of patient data is to work with patients as co-designers and advisors in the collection analysis and the use of the data. So let's just dive right in. We're going to walk through how patients can be strategy partners across all facets of healthcare and research. And again, just as in the last webinar, starting with clinical and academic research. So we talked last time about the patient-generated data efforts that PCORI, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, created, like PCORNet. But PCORI was also an early champion of including patients as partners and advisors in the research process itself, meaning having patients serving as advisors and leaders in the planning, in the conduct, and in the dissemination of research, shaping the way it's conducted, shaping the way the outcomes and the goals of the research are crafted. And this notion of patient-centered outcomes research, or PCOR, now exists all over the world. And there are examples here on your slide from AHRQ and several medical and academic institutions. And this is certainly scratching just the tip of the iceberg. In the drug and device development space, the construct is very similar. Patients are now playing really pretty impressive roles in the medical product lifecycle, starting all the way at ideation, carrying through to clinical trials and all the way through to post-market use and education. And here again, the FDA has been such a champion of bringing patients into these roles, having patients serve on committees and panels that advise the FDA, but also, and this is critical, making it very clear to industry that not only is it appropriate for companies to work directly with patient partners, it is advisable. It's not just appropriate, it is advisable. In other words, don't launch into product development based on your own assumptions or guesses about what patients want or need. Talk to patients about what they want and need. And these same consortia that I mentioned in the data focus webinar, the DIA and the PFMD, also support the work of these individual partners and advisors. Repositories of guidance and best practices, all that these partnering patients can use um, to really improve the process. We talked last time about sort of the pitfalls in data collection in the safety and quality space, um, that this is an area of great possibility when it comes to collecting patient data about harm and quality. But on the patients as strategy partners side of things, there's actually much more to celebrate here. So patient and family advisory councils are having a tremendous impact 
on the quality and safety of care being provided in hospitals and health systems and in some medical schools. They're lending their insights to shape the curriculum and the training of new clinicians. And lastly, as we talked about last time, there's also certainly a role for patients to play in the value assessment and payment policy space. And while the U.S. doesn't have a formal health technology assessment or HTA body, ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, runs its analysis of the cost effectiveness of therapies and other health technologies. They've really begun to embrace the role of patients as partners in this process. They invite patient representatives in to help paint a more realistic picture of what patients experience with their conditions and in their journeys to, to find those right therapies. Starting back at the top though, let's, let's go back through our domains. Um, and the way patients serve as strategy partners in the clinical and academic research space. So the way they do this is as team members, I mean, truly parts of the team. And you have to always keep this frame of reference in mind. When we're talking about patients who are partnering in research, we're not talking about the people involved in a study as the study subjects. Those are important people and gosh, research couldn't happen without them. But we're talking about folks that are on the same side of the curtain, if you will, as the researchers and clinicians. And they can serve a variety of functions to just ensure that the research is more relevant, meaningful, successful. So listed here are just a couple examples. You know, co-create or revise the research question, design the recruitment and retention strategy, assist with data collection and data analysis. Those are huge roles for patients to play. Essentially, if it happens in research, then patient partners can help with it or lead it. So for example, even figuring out the right research question relies on the lived experience of patients. A while back, Bacori funded a study in epilepsy aiming to figure out which of three different available therapies helps to lower the number of seizures to the greatest extent. That was sort of the, the goal. But it was the patients and the parent partners who were able to say, oh, you know, that's not quite it. We do want fewer seizures, but you have to understand the side effects from these drugs are all really problematic. So our endpoint is more like which one lowers seizures while still sort of allowing for a relatively high quality of life um, with these side effects. That's a pretty different endpoint than what was originally envisioned. So you can see why that input, that input right at the beginning was so important. Now stick with me. Uh, this time, um, unlike last time, I'm going to give two examples at each domain um, because I want to show an example that really taps into both the role of patients as data contributors and as partners in strategy. So in this case, this was another PCORI study, this time in asthma, and one of the needs was to collect data from the patient community about how effective a particular disease management tool was. The original draft of the survey then asked how many days of work or school were missed as a result of the asthma. And the patient partners explained that the survey, as it was written in its original form, was not going to capture accurate data. They said, look, we don't experience this disease in eight-hour chunks of time. It happens in a few hours here or a few hours there, or maybe I'm dragging at work because I was up all night in the ER with my kid. So I would see the survey and I would say, none, I don't miss any days. And that certainly doesn't capture what you're trying to capture. So patient partners have a massive role to play in collecting and analyzing data to ensure that you're actually getting the data that you think you're getting. Now in drug and device development, the roles for patients are almost identical to those in academic and clinical research. It's just involvement from planning and ideation 
all the way through to post-market use. They can be involved in figuring out the right treatment targets, how to design the clinical trial, essentially anything that happens in the course of a clinical trial or product development, patients can be involved in. And just as in clinical and academic research, patient partners can help with the study protocol and shape it to be more feasible, more attractive to patients. In this case, the original protocol um, didn't allow use of a particular rescue drug. This was in a, a draft protocol for a group of patients um, looking at whether this clinical trial protocol would, would be a bust or whether patients would actually sign up. A provision that the research and development folks at the company didn't even think would be an issue. But as it turned out, the patient said, oh, yikes, I don't know if I'd be willing to be sort of locked into a trial that said I would not be allowed to take this fairly benign rescue drug. So think of something very um, minor, over-the-counter. They thought, that's sort of a safety blanket for me, and, and this gives me a lot of doubt about whether I would want to be in that trial. So we know so many clinical trials fail because of a lack of enrollment. Think about if you can know these issues up front and try to correct or amend them, you could save so much time and money and so much of the patient community's time and money and resource. Now here again, let's take an example that kind of combines the notion of patients as data contributors and then patients as strategy partners. And in this case, I wanna focus on data analysis. I think for some reason, when people learn about patient engagement and research and drug development, Data analysis is the sort of the, the farthest hill to climb. They can't quite wrap their heads around how patients could have a role here. But let's say you collect data about patient preferences for in-home infusions versus in-office or hospital infusions. And um, I know in my disease community, certainly in the pediatric dermatology community, there are treatments that require infusion. So this um, might ring a bell for many of you. Let's say that you collect this data and it shows that a larger proportion of patients prefer to get infusions at home. Well, now, what might the researchers conclude from that data? And importantly, what issues might they miss? So maybe they assume that home treatment is easier, but what if it was actually the case that some people have young kids or pets or roommates? Um, what if it's not restful? Maybe. Um, there are compelling reasons to not get your treatment at home. On the other side of the coin, maybe there are researchers' assumptions that people want to receive infusions in the office or in the hospital because they're nervous about reactions and want emergency care available promptly. Um, but what if it's more that the office is close to work or it's a relaxing environment and if they were at home, they'd want to be doing laundry or wiping down the kitchen counters? So I think it's so important to think about data as one part of a very important story. And right, data can tell us a great deal of information, but we've got to have that patient partner insight to help us with context, help us unearth motivation and reasoning. It's not as simple as the data looks. Now, I mentioned patient and family advisory councils in the overview slide, but they are worth speaking to again as we touch on safety and quality. Um, they are such an important player in this space as are patient advisors and navigators who become involved in the CMS Partnership for Patients program, which I encourage you to check out. If you think about us in the patient community, we are the single constant in our care. So we are the only ones at each visit, at each lab draw, at each x-ray. So we can bring that lived experience and firsthand insight to the quality and safety space in a way that really nobody else can do. 
And one example of, of how this has worked in the quality and safety space is in hand hygiene. Now we are all taught to wash our hands just in normal daily life, but obviously hand washing takes on even more importance in a clinical setting like hospitals. And unfortunately, as scary as it is, in many settings, clinicians are still not washing their hands between encounters um, or you know, moving from task to task, which clearly leads to an infection risk. And many of us with diseases that affect our immune system or on medicines that affect our immune system, this is a big deal. So patient and family advisory councils and other patient and family leaders with lots of experience in hospitals and clinics are in a unique position to observe whether hand washing is happening. Um, PFACs around the country have been involved in improving hand hygiene, whether it's because they suggested that there should be more hand washing stations installed on a hospital floor, or maybe it's ensuring that hand washing happens in the patient room where you can actually see it as the patient, or even if it's sort of looking at the other side, working to make sure that patients and families themselves have access to wipes or other hand sanitizing equipment. So there have been more examples than I could possibly list where PFACs and patient leaders have actually really upped the game to improve hand washing and then reduce those risks of infection. Now here's our combination example of um, patients as data contributors and as uh, strategy partners. In the quality and safety space, I want to talk about something called kernicterus. And this is a condition that at one point in the U.S. was thought to be completely eradicated. Um, this is brain damage that's actually from untreated newborn jaundice. So completely preventable if you catch the jaundice and treat it. But if not, this type of brain damage can result. Um, because of a change in medical practice, and this was a long time ago, that moved away from blood tests to a visual assessment. So um, when babies were born, instead of being pricked and have their blood tested to see if there was jaundice, instead it was a visual assessment to see if their skin was the appropriate color. Because of that shift, babies were developing kernicterus because jaundice was going undetected. Now, parents whose children had this condition first had to sort of fight to, to get that diagnosis because so many clinicians thought it didn't exist anymore. And eventually they found each other, formed a parent and patient group around kernicterus and really wanted to work together to change practice guidelines and say, hey, why don't we use blood tests if that's a surefire way to make sure that we know that there's a bilirubin issue, that there's jaundice instead of these visual inspections. But in order to do that, you know, when they started down this policy path, they needed proof, meaning data. And they needed data on whether one approach was truly more effective than another. So what did they do? They work with researchers and the broader patient community to get the data they needed to run a large comparative study to see if one mechanism truly was better than another. And through that work, through the collection of data from patients and the, the vision and leadership of patients as strategy partners, they were able to get that guideline changed. And then lastly, circling back to this value assessment and payment policy, in the last webinar, I already shared the example of patient-generated data changing the dialogue in a review conducted by ICER. In that case, it was about rheumatoid arthritis and biologics. But there's another really notable example, just an anecdotal example, but I think it's important and will probably resonate with many of you. And this came from a deliberation related to a different autoimmune disease. Um, the question was, should patients take cheaper, older drugs that are quote-unquote safer they cause a fair number of side effects, but not serious ones, just more 
what many people call nuisance side effects, but those of us in the patient community know that they can still have significant impact on our quality of life. Or should these patients take newer, more expensive drugs that have much fewer, maybe even no side effects that are nuisance side effects, and instead have a very low risk of much more serious side effects, including possible malignancy. So during this conversation, a health economist said, I just don't think these patients truly understand the real risks of the newer drugs. And if they did understand that, you know, there's a very slight chance you could even develop a malignancy, um, I don't think they would ever uh, opt to go that route versus these cheaper, more um, commonly used drugs with this whole swath of nuisance side effects. I was really struck as a patient myself in that room thinking, no, I don't think the issue is that the patients don't understand the risks. I think the issue is that perhaps health economists or other looking at this, other folks looking at this issue don't understand the real burden of the disease and why patients would be willing to take that risk. So it gives you that two-pronged perspective that the data is so important, but so is that direct line of communication with human patients in the room. We've come almost to the end of, of our time together, but I wanted to make sure you walked away with some specific calls to action and next steps. So going back through our domains here, starting with clinical and academic research, check out PCORI. I've mentioned it now in both webinars. Um, there are opportunities to serve as a PCORI ambassador. You can be a merit reviewer. You could partner on one of the research projects. So definitely check it out and see what's available to you. And more locally, look around and see if there are institutions near you that are conducting PCOR. If they've got PCORI funding, chances are they either are recruiting patient partners or they would be willing to talk to you about serving as a patient partner. So reach out and share that interest. Um, and what about PEDRA? What about the research going on in your own community? Um, definitely just make yourself aware and, and take those opportunities as they come up. Now in drug and device development, very similar to what we talked about last time, check out the FDA. Make sure you know what's going on. There's so much accessible information, accessible meetings, committees to serve on, many other roles. So just make yourself aware of what's happening in that community so that you can be able to, to pounce on those opportunities. Definitely also look for opportunities to learn about what's going on on the industry side. So there's a couple key conferences. One is called Patients as Partners, one is called the DIA or Drug Information Association Global Meeting. That's an annual meeting. Uh, a group called BIO, which is another trade association, has annual meetings. Sometimes patient scholarships are available. If it's happening in your neck of the woods, you might be able to ask to get a day pass. Um, check them out so you can learn more about what patients like you are doing in this innovative space. And then lastly, in the patient safety and quality movement, certainly look at your local hospital or learning institution to see if there's a spot on the Patient and Family Advisory Council. Those are phenomenal ways to get involved and improve quality of care. Um, work within your own patient advocacy organization or with PEDRA to tackle safety and quality issues. Check out the CMS website, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, the Partnership for Patient Program. There might be something going on that's close to you that you could be involved in. So certainly so many ways to get involved. But how do you do it? It's one thing to, to provide you the links what about sort of the tips and the tricks for you as you navigate this space? Well, first, please remember that you don't need to be an expert in science or quality improvement or any of the domains we've talked about 
because you have lived experience. That is your expertise as a patient. Second, don't be afraid to ask. Just ask to be involved. What's the worst that you could hear? Um, even if you aren't sure what that would look like, be bold and give it a try. Um, it's okay to try something and, and change your mind about it, but you won't know whether you like it or not until you give it a try. Next item is, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not in contradiction with the first bullet, so I want to make sure that's clear, but it is good to learn basic aspects of whatever field you're participating in. You, again, don't need to become an expert, but if you can do a little bit of homework so that you'll have some basic understanding of the topics and the concepts, that can really help you position yourself for your role. And then really importantly, when you do have these opportunities to partner, so when you're in the room, even when you're intimidated because everyone else there has multiple letters behind their name and they've been around the field for a long time, please be vocal and bold. Um, I like to call the opposite of that shoulder shrug engagement. And shoulder shrug engagement doesn't really make an impact. I know it can be hard. You don't want to disagree with anyone. You might feel grateful just to have been asked to be in the room. But remember that you are there as a representative of your patient community, and you really don't want to miss your shot to make a difference. And with that, we've come to the end of our, our time. Um, I hope this was informative and, again, got you energized about the possibilities that exist when we work together as a patient community with our fellow researchers and clinicians. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out.